part one, we discussed how Love's Labour's Lost ends on an unusually serious note. Later in this episode, we'll explore the play's serious questions about the meaning of marriage and the purpose of education. But we start by discussing the play's humour. Gordon Teske, Francis Lee Higginson Professor of English Literature at Harvard University, guides our discussion. It's a very funny play if it's done by very good professional actors. I mentioned those 10 comedies in the first half of Shakespeare's career. It's funnier than all of them. Love's Labour's Lost is just continually funny. The play may be full of elaborate rhetoric, but that's actually not so unusual for a Shakespearean comedy. And the language still leaves plenty of room for physical and farcical humour. To put it in slightly abstract terms, what Love Slavers Lost has in common with other Shakespeare comedies is uh, farcical stage business and ornate language. In fact, that's pretty much the basic chemistry of Shakespearean comedy, farce and ornateness. Both elements are really pushed to an extreme in Love Slavers Lost. There are plenty of jokes that don't rely on ornate language at all. After one particularly zany dialogue with Don Armado, the schoolmaster Holofernes turns to Constable Dull and says, Thou hast spoken no word all this while. And Dull replies, Nor understood none neither, sir. A lot of the laughter in Elizabethan theatre comes from the lower tier characters. The ridiculous things they say come a lot slower. Bring him festinately hither. We can we can just laugh at that without having any difficulty understanding it because they're simply ridiculous. My wife said that she adores Holofernes and Don Armado because they're innocent. But Holofernes reflects one of the play's serious projects as well. As we mentioned in part one, his position as a university graduate and a figure of fun represented a real and uncomfortable social situation in Shakespeare's day. More generally, the educational system he stands for is something that Shakespeare takes very seriously in this play, as we still do today. Holofernes, with his Latin learning and his elaborate style of speech, is a product of humanism, the new programme of studies popularised in the Renaissance that focused on ancient literature and languages, especially Latin and Greek. In Holofernes, this learning comes across as comical. But the king's earnest proposal to spend three years in strict study is also based on humanist ideals. Love's Labour's Lost is about the Renaissance ideal of humanist education as a pathway to nobility and glory. To put it in a nutshell, humanism replaces military discipline with self-discipline. So a young medieval aristocrat is going to learn to fight. But young aristocrats, and more to the point, upper middle class people, starting with Geoffrey Chaucer, the greatest author of his age at the end of the Middle Ages, rose to the positions of influence and authority because of his superb education. So that takes a lot of self-discipline. And the king's oath to study for three years, to eat and sleep very little, and crucially not to speak to women, it's still all part of this humanist program. And Shakespeare's using this ridiculous oath to telegraph the extreme arduousness of the 
humanist program. So the background of humanist education is important for this play because humanism brought the middle classes into power. About 100 years after this play, after 1688, the middle classes were calling the shots, largely because of the kind of education that they were getting. Today, many modern societies place a similar enormous emphasis on education. Many young people study at university for three years or more, immersed in contemporary versions of humanism, including the study of literature like Shakespeare. The play addresses the purpose of education in youth. It is, of course, a question we still face today. Why do we expend so much energy, time and money to educate young people in the humanities? We're still at the end of this humanist education, which belongs to the Renaissance. And we insist that young people read very difficult texts, works of literature and the like, spend hours at it, writing, at just the time when they're most attractive to one another as well. So there is a sort of contradiction in the educational project that, or you might say, a distraction. Now, the King of Navarre comes up with the easy way of taking care of that distraction. We shall talk to no ladies for three years. It's absurd. It goes against nature, as Barone points out. The King tells Barone that the point of study is to know which else we should not know. But by swearing to do nothing but study, the men show how little they know their own inclinations and abilities. It isn't possible or desirable for them to keep an oath like this. Fortunately, they're characters in a comedy, and comedy loves to break down these kinds of barriers. All comedies start with some external social barrier of some kind to the fulfillment of love. Usually the barrier is created by the older generation. Here, it's the younger generation that creates this obstacle, this irrational vow that's taken by the King of Navarre and the young men following him. The obstacle is created by the lovers themselves. That means that this comedy isn't a social comedy, it's a moral comedy, because they've made this mistake about themselves. They don't know themselves enough. And that's part of the play's moral character. When the oath is proposed, Barone appears to be the wisest of his companions. Oh, these are barren tasks, too hard to keep, he insists. He is the most sceptical about the oath and the most astute in predicting that they will break it. But he undergoes his own moral struggle around his feelings for Rosaline. He reflects on those feelings at the start of Act 4, Scene 3. Here, Perone is talking about his being ashamed to be in love. And there are two reasons he's ashamed to be in love. The one we expect, which is that he's breaking his oath. But the second is interesting. Rosaline is, by the um, curious standards of beauty of the day, the least beautiful of the ladies of France because she's dark. He expects to be mocked for this, and indeed he will be mocked for this, for liking a woman who is tawny and, and dark and so on. He's, he's embarrassed. I think, because I like Baron, that he's also embarrassed to be embarrassed. So he's embarrassed in front of his friends, but worse, he's embarrassed in front of himself because he loves her, and yet he, has, he can't get rid of this feeling that he's a very fine fellow and he shouldn't have to put up with the dark one. And that's a despicable thought. 
and he knows it's a despicable thought and he can't get it out of his head. So that's the wonderful Shakespearean psychological knot of this play. Barone's friends do mock him later for loving Rosaline. By heaven, thy love is black as ebony, says the king, and reminds him that black is the badge of hell. They've had a lot of fun making fun of Barone for his his lady who is an Ethiop, who is as black as the mud on the bottom of my shoe, says Dumaine at one point, very un- unpleasantly. Barone, to his credit, even after his embarrassment on this issue, says, you know, she's, she's more beautiful than anyone. Her darkness beats, uh, beats the, the white and the red, which are the two colors associated most with beauty. She surpasses them all. Barone may put aside his initial hesitancy about Rosaline's darkness, But the jokes and insults throughout the play register a broader, longer-lasting cultural negativity surrounding blackness. Here's my answer about the question of Rosalind's blackness and the question of blackness in general in in the play. So, briefly, Shakespeare would have meant a dark complexioned woman who might look Italian or Spanish like the dark lady of the sonnets. We hear in the play of tawny Spain, um, and the epithet tawny, which means a deep brown, a word like tawny or the blackness of Rosaline. These are not meant to be harmless like our word brunette. Barone admits that he's embarrassed by falling in love with a dark-complexioned woman whom he assumes is promiscuous because of her color. There's plenty more in that vein in Act 4, Scene 3, There's another word in this play that's entirely negative, and it refers to Africans. The word is Ethiopian. Now, this means a black African, a South Saharan African, such as you would see, for example, in Ethiopia. The idea of the Ethiopians goes back to Homer, by the way, and in Homer, they're seen as entirely good, better than most human beings, but they develop negative implications later on, or at least implications of exoticism. And the word is used several times in the play. I think for anyone reading the play from a critical Black perspective, the real shocker is the appearance of the Ethiopes who enter before the Muscovites. So this is not a speaking part. Clearly some large, strong Black men are supposed to enter the scene leading on the Muscovites. They were often used in the theater and in pageants for scenes that involved the use of strength. When James I entered London, the lions that were supposed to be pulling his chariot got sick, and so they got black men to pull his chariot instead. These aspects of the play, Professor Teske explains, reflect the ideologies around race and colour in Shakespeare's time, when England was beginning its colonial expansion. And although this romantic comedy may not focus on race the way that, for example, Othello does, it's vital to notice and take account of these ideologies at work. Barone defends Rosaline against his friend's mockery, which shows a kind of personal growth, The rest of them seem to have their own moment of maturity when they finally admit that it would be a mistake to keep the oath, after Barone makes a moving speech arguing that love itself provides the most profound kind of knowledge. 
This, I think, is something we don't expect. This is the Shakespeare touch, love itself, and especially the love of ladies, ladies' eyes and the like, are, are an education, or you can't be educated without that experience of the whole heart going out to someone else. So this French academy that's been set up in imitation of the Florentine Academy, that's the whole humanist project of the Renaissance, is finally, with its discipline of suppression of normal human feelings in order to acquire knowledge from books, is finally absorbed and transcended into a view of love that is itself a kind of education. It's a great moment. And the speech is a great speech. And you think that their moral education may be well on its way. But not yet, and indeed far from it. If the men didn't understand themselves enough before, now they show that they don't understand the ladies. They're confident that they can quickly and easily win over these girls of France, not pausing to ask whether the ladies might be put off by how easily these men break their oaths. In fact, they speak as though the ladies will be just as ready to break their promises as the men. They say this, which shows again that they're still in a state of moral confusion. Light wenches may prove plagues to men forsworn. If so... Our copper buys no better treasure. So men who have broken their oaths don't deserve proper faithful ladies. They deserve only light wenches, which would mean promiscuous wenches. They won't have faithful wives. They're already uh, demeaning and deprecating the ladies, trying to kind of bring them down to their level as an act of generosity. They actually think they're being nice in doing this. So it's, it's quite foolish and silly and, it's all, and conceited. And so they go off stage very excited and we're ready, we're ready to see them run into a brick wall. The brick wall comes soon enough, thanks to the cleverness of the ladies. When the men disguise themselves as Muscovites and the women disguise themselves in turn, the men end up wooing the wrong women, something they are horrified to discover when the women reveal their trick. But the women tricked them so easily that we might wonder what it means to call any woman the right woman. How well do these men really know the women they are claiming to love? They seem to jump into courtship with the same enthusiasm and blindness as they did into their studies. This is what the princess recognises when she calls their courtship a mockery merriment. But even if their wooing begins as a game, it will turn into an education, if not exactly the kind that they had imagined. Other comedies are about getting married in order to be fully grown up, whereas this comedy is about growing up in order to get married. So, whereas in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the lovers attain a kind of freedom once they are married. In this play, marriage represents not so much freedom, but, but commitment, which isn't quite the same thing. The need to grow up, the need for commitment, these are what come to the fore when the play's tone alters abruptly near the end. The lords and ladies are busy with the merriment of the Nine Worthies pageant when they are interrupted by the news that the princess's father has died. 
The king's response is to keep pushing Love's argument, which suggests that he doesn't understand the gravity of this news or of Love. The king says, so sorry your father has died, but we do have some wooing going on here. We understand you have to mourn, but can we make some commitment here? And the princess says, not for an everlasting bargain, not at all. And I didn't take any of your wooing seriously. Quite a striking statement. She doesn't say it to hurt his feelings. She's truthful. She didn't ever took him seriously. Do you want to take me seriously? Well, spend a year in, in a monastery. Notice it's not a humanist setting anymore. Spend a year in a monastery in meditation and discipline, self-discipline, so that you'll get to know yourself. She doesn't say so that you will get to know yourself, and that's implied. And then if you still feel the way you do now, maybe we can talk. The point about this distinction between worldly ambition, which belongs to humanist education, and being good, which is associated with um, religious meditation, religious self-discipline, is driven home by that specific command that Rosalind gives to Barone when she tells him to spend a year attending to the sick in the hospital because he has this reputation as a conceited sneer. Rosalind says that if Barone can't make people on their deathbeds laugh when he mocks them, then he must throw away that mocking spirit. And after a year, if she finds him empty of that fault, she'll rejoice in his reformation the reformation from being a cruel mocker to someone with real human sympathy for others who are in pain. It means a moral reformation. Barone and his companions began the play with an ambitious plan for reforming themselves through education, to live in philosophy, to undertake studies so rigorous that their court would become the wonder of the world, winning them fame and honour. But this educational programme wouldn't have provided the kind of reformation that Rosaline is looking for. If we contrast the purpose of education in the Middle Ages with the purpose of education in the Renaissance, it makes a sharp moral contrast with Shakespeare saw. In the Middle Ages, the purpose of learning was to go closer to God. And one of the ways you do that is by moral improvement. In the Renaissance, education was about getting power winning social influence. It's accompanied by the movement of the middle classes into positions of power and the weapon, you might say, with which the middle classes moved into position of power was education. So I think Shakespeare is putting a kind of moral judgment on that educational ideal. The man without a university education saw through it all. This returns us to the point that Love's Labour's Lost, for all its humour, is a moral comedy. The men don't stop to ask themselves why they're taking such an absurd oath. Is it really to acquire knowledge? Or is it more about the fame and honour that the king emphasises in his opening speech? And what if neither knowledge nor fame is the most vital thing to pursue? What if there's something even more important? These are the same questions that young people might ask themselves today when they consider further education. Why am I doing this? Is it to enjoy learning for the sake of learning? Is it to get a good job? Is the point of a job to make money? To make a name for myself in my career? 
If I do all these things, what else might I still be missing? So I'm going to push this a bit and say that I think Shakespeare is actually criticizing the hollow ideals behind Renaissance humanist education for all the talk of its doing good for the state. As Bertrand Russell said, uh, behind professions of idealism, what you often find is the love of power. So Shakespeare isn't really exposing the humanist ideal as hypocritical and selfish. He's saying that it has nothing to do with sympathy for others. The ending strikes a strange note. On the one hand, we've been led to expect the usual happy ending of comedy, which is marriage. Those expectations are dashed. As Barone himself points out, our wooing doth not end like an old play, Jack hath not Jill. These ladies' courtesy might well have made our sport a comedy. But on the other hand, the reason the play ends as it does is because it insists so seriously on genuine love, commitment, and compassion for others. I do think this is a unique conclusion to a comedy. We're loaded for five weddings. Not one of them occurs. It's almost as if Shakespeare's writing comedies so fast, he wants to try new things to see what works. What it feels like to write a comedy that might be serious about education and serious about marriage when comedies are supposed to be unserious about education and, on the whole, unserious about marriage. They end with marriages. You're, you've, you've slid into base, but there's nothing about marriage itself. So I think it's, in a sense, an experimental moment in Shakespeare. We're not supposed to know whether they're all going to get married in a year's time. We're perhaps not supposed to care that much because we've been moved out of the comic element. I don't feel we are cheated of the marriages that we're expecting. I certainly don't want to see those marriages, not in this play. I don't want to see them all change their minds and line up and get, get married. It would be depressing somehow. There's something exhilarating in this final moment of self-denial because it's morally serious. There's the proposal that you have to earn it before you get it. It's a more serious proposal. Why should you be given it for free? Earn it. We don't know what will happen with these characters, but actors can suggest what might happen through the physical actions they choose to play while the final songs are being sung. It's what I like to call with students, director's choice. It's such a, a great opportunity for a director to say, okay, you playing King of Navarre, go over, stand beside the Princess of France, and as the spring song is being sung, try to try to take her hand. You can't just have Rosalind and Barone just stand there like posts as these songs are sung. They have to do something. So what do they do? Uh, could we have... Could we have them kick up their heels a little bit? Could we risk that? We'll leave the question open. It's director's choice. The final scene, with its strange mix of tones and defiance of conventions, is exhilarating for the audience and for the actors, offering the chance to imagine different possible futures for these characters. We don't know where they will go. It depends on what they have learned. In our next episode, we'll look closely at three speeches of Barone's from the beginning, middle and end of the play to see how they reflect what he learns over the course of the story. 
We'll also examine the play's literary style and the unexpected joy conveyed by the final songs. 